Gaining historic momentum in 2020, America's fight against racial injustice remains at the forefront of the nation's headspace. The months following the killing of George Floyd at the hand of a Minnesota police officer reignited an ongoing movement for social justice and a collective push for change not seen in decades. But as some people come together, others drift further apart. As an ongoing cultural divide deepens, acts of violence around the world not only bring prejudice-motivated crimes into the spotlight, but how we react to them as well. Science is now discovering why people react to the same violent acts differently, as well as the key factors that separate communities. In order to truly tackle the social issues plaguing society, we must get to the bottom of how we perceive social injustice in the first place. And with the help of scientific investigation and a media-savvy generation armed with innovative ideas, we can take on systemic racism more powerfully than ever before. Welcome to the Abstract Podcast from Inverse. I'm Tanya Bustos, your host. Our first story looks at the latest research that explains how people react to hate crimes. Even when people learn about the same social injustices, a new study suggests they perceive them differently. These patterns become meaningful when scaled up to the population level, and understanding them could be the first step in bridging long-standing cultural divides. Our second story is about how the entertainment industry is taking on social justice. Tackling issues of systemic racism, a superhero genre has emerged as an unexpected force against hate, with programs like Amazon's The Boys and Netflix's Umbrella Academy leading the charge. This is The Abstract, a look at the latest scientific discoveries and technology innovations from the reporters at Inverse. In each episode, we explore a single theme through two different stories. Up now, what is a hate crime? A new study finds that the answer to this question divides people in one crucial way. Since the outbreak of COVID-19, we have seen an incredibly disturbing, skyrocketing increase in the number of hate crimes. A young woman wearing a mask is attacked in a subway station. Racist attacks against Chinese Americans. A group of white men can be seen pitting a black man against a tree. A suspected hate crime against a U.S. citizen of Indian descent. Swastikas, homophobic insults. Hate crimes are a serious issue in our country and they're on the rise. As the coronavirus pandemic drives in a new wave of hate crimes, publicized interpersonal tragedies are gaining more attention by the world at large. And as people learn more about the same violent acts, they're perceiving them in entirely different ways. Hate crimes are ultimately not seen as hate crimes by everyone. In order to better understand why this happens, a July 2020 study published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences asked people about their views on specific hate crimes, conducting psychological surveys in the wakes of mass shootings in the United States, New Zealand, and the Netherlands. The intent was to test how racial biases affect views of hate crimes. According to the research team, how someone judges violence comes down to one thing. Basically, if a person already harbors racial sentiments, it can be harder for them to recognize hate crimes as hate crimes. The researchers say these results show a pattern of judgments being influenced by prejudice, but also by victimized feelings of disempowerment. And while these patterns can be small and subtle, they become meaningful when scaled up to the population level, especially when they occur repeatedly over time and across situations. David Grossman, staff writer at Inverse, covered this at length and joins us right now. Hey, David. Hey, Tanya. Great to be here. So walk us through this process, because essentially... It conducted psychological surveys in the wakes of mass shootings and noted some really interesting correlations. 
Right, yes. The study, which was led by a guy named N. Pontus Leander, who was an associate professor of psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, looked at a... um, a cavalcade of tragedies, I would say. You have the 29 mass shooting in Walmart, the 2018 mass shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, a 2019 shooting on a tram in Utrecht, a 2019 Christchurch mosque shooting, which a lot of people remember, very tragic. Um, and there were a number of other shootings and violent acts that the study also looked at. Um, kind of trying to gouge uh, a local population's reaction to those crimes. What I found that was interesting, though, was there's this idea that part of this perception, not wanting to acknowledge a hate crime, do you think a lack of not wanting to acknowledge the victimhood of the people these crimes are aimed at is a huge part of this whole issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. Not wanting to acknowledge victimhood. And who... This is a big question. Who is the victim in our society? Who gets to be a victim? That is a real, real big question. The really interesting thing here was the setting up between the 2019 Utrecht uh, tram shooting, which maybe not many people have heard of, and the 2019 Christchurch mosque shooting, which, which is very well known. So the 2019 Utrecht tram shooting, four people were killed by a guy who believed in a radical, a very radical extreme form of Islam. It was an Islamic act of terror. And the Christchurch shooting was an Islamic phobic act. And what was interesting, comparing the two crimes, one in Utrecht and one in Christchurch, the one in Utrecht was perpetrated by a Turkish-born immigrant. That allowed people to think it was a hate crime much easier. People were much more willing to pin a hate crime on a minority. People were much more willing to believe that a that a immigrant, a, a minority in society, was more likely to commit a hate crime and believe that a person who is a majority of the society, as it happened in Christchurch, was less likely to commit a hate crime. And there's also, you know, that question of whether different prejudices can share a common baseline of sorts. And there's certainly a conversation that takes place or has been taking place when assessing racial issues in America, the way one of the researchers in your piece put it well, this issue of an aggrieved sense of disempowerment in society. That always seems to come up. When you're in a majority group and you feel disempowered, it almost seems to feed the sense of, of prejudice. It absolutely does. And you saw very much in um, with the Christchurch shooting and with the Utrecht shooting, you saw kind of an inverse of the two. Suddenly the Utrecht shooting was offering this kind of big confirmation bias towards people's already held beliefs. And when their beliefs were challenged by something like the Christchurch shooting, they were more likely to push it to the side. One thing I want to make note of is the difference between a hate crime and a regular crime. Can you get into the difference and and how the study just lends itself to that difference? Sure, absolutely. And this is a common question with the subject of hate crimes. You know, aren't all crimes hateful to an extent? And the answer probably is true to, to some level. But hate crimes where a person is targeted specifically for a group they're a part of, be it, ethnic, be it an ethnicity or a religion, have different reverberations than, you know, one could say standard crimes. You know, a standard bank robbery could be traumatizing, obviously, but the psychological damage from a hate crime is likely to be more lasting 
It's likely to affect a person for years throughout their life if they survive it. It's likely to affect that person's community. And these have all been proven uh, by the American Psychological Association, which says that people victimized by violent hate crimes are more likely to experience more psychological distress than vi victims of other crimes. Post-traumatic stress, safety concerns, depression, anxiety, and anger. You don't see, and you see that a lot less in crimes that are not motivated by bias. So there's a very important reason that hate crimes are looked at at their own, and there's a very important reason that we should take hate crime seriously. The study also shows how failure to acknowledge violent hate crimes can actually start these small and subtle resentments towards the group that's been attacked. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, reading over the paper's abstract, it, it mentioned that the changes it saw in people you know, felt one way about immigrants with people who didn't feel, who felt another way about immigrants, was small and subtle. And talking with Leander about this, he mentioned that these small and subtle patterns can become meaningful when, sc when scaled up to the population level, when it happens time and time again. You know, so if you see hate crimes in the news, as we all see them regularly now, and it can be very easy to, to justify that action or even downplay it. And that small and subtle action, that one time, um, when repeated, will eventually shape your worldview. Because what are worldviews except things we believe? And if you believe something enough and you hear it enough that this crime is done for different reasons, that this person may have had a reason to do something, even if they went the wrong way about it. If you start uh, buying into those arguments, then the road becomes a lot easier to just dehumanizing people. That does make a lot of sense. And it just lends itself, again, to how complicated this issue is and how all of these pieces of the puzzle are so complex. Uh, listeners can head to inverse.com for the full piece. David, thank you so much. Tanya, my pleasure. In its highly anticipated season two premiere, Amazon's The Boys aims to take on white supremacy and systemic racism as superhero shows take the lead in tackling issues of social justice. in the country. We got soup terrorists. And we got no superheroes. Hi! I'm Stormfront. Who? I'm the new girl. Wonderful. So what's your big plan? We'll take them for There we go. And I get my wife back. Ahead of its September 2020 premiere, Amazon's The Boys Season 2 trailer has fans itching to get their hands on the next chapter. Based on the R-rated comics, Amazon's original superhero series was the nihilistic breath of fresh air America didn't know it needed. Based on a group of blue-collar vigilantes looking to take down a gang of secretly evil superheroes, the show's success raised the bar for the entire genre yet again. This comes as new superhero shows step up to tackle issues of social justice and racism. Whether it's Netflix's Umbrella Academy, which featured a powerful story about a sit-in protest in 1963 during its first season, or HBO's Watchmen, which in its opening scene, recreates the Tulsa race riot of 1921, known as the worst incident of racial violence in American history. 
Shows like these continue to provide stark reminders of chilling moments in American history, moments that seem all too relevant in the year 2020. And as The Boys season two returns in September 2020, a new character called Stormfront aims to subtly but powerfully take things up a notch. Hi, my Nana's your biggest fan. I'm Stormfront. Great. Oh, right, yeah, from Seattle, right? Uh, <laughs> Portland, actually. Your uh, highness. Holy sh! Your eyes are really f***ing blue up close. <laughs> you are fun. Been a hoot. We got work to do, so let's get back to it. Oh, totally. Uh, they just wanted me to meet you. Who? Oh, the boys on 82. I'm the new girl. An outright racist superhero who uses social media to secretly advance her political agendas, she understands how politics works in 2020, flooding the internet with crude memes, among other things. But as a charismatic woman who is media savvy, she personifies how a new technologically advanced movement is using the internet to win over a new generation. Here with the podcast to talk more about how the superhero genre in particular is taking on issues of social injustice and racism is senior entertainment editor at Inverse, Jake Kleiman. Hey, Jake, welcome to the show. First time. Yeah, first time, but long time listener. Thanks, Tanya. Happy to have you on. So it's interesting timing. We see the superhero genre get darker and take on social issues at a time when the current social climate is seeing a movement. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. We see new lights cast on social injustices everywhere. What's your sense of the way this medium is rising to the occasion and taking on these issues? Well, yeah, I definitely think we're seeing a turning point in superheroes in the you know live action shows and movies. Obviously, the Joker film that came out was probably the most famous example of, you know, a really dark, gritty story that tried to say something serious about society. But The Boys is, I would argue, the most successful in that sense. It's based on source material that already is pretty out there. The comic was canceled and then uncanceled. It's extremely rated R. And the show doesn't really pull any punches. There's a lot of sex and violence and drugs mostly being perpetrated by the superheroes. With The Boys Season 2, we get taken even further into it. The show's offering new ways to highlight the current social issues. Let's talk about the Stormfront character. First, who the character is. The comic book Stormfront and the TV Stormfront are very different. What do you think is behind the transformation of the character? You spoke to showrunner Eric Kripke. There seems to be this intentional commentary on how white supremacy is winning over a new generation. So yes, they changed uh, Stormfront's character a lot. In the comics, Stormfront is a man. Stormfront is a very avowed Nazi and racist. He wears it on his sleeves. I think there's a comic book cover where his back, his uh, cape is just a Nazi flag. So the show changes all that. Aya Cash's character Stormfront is a lot more slick. She's very social media savvy. She starts out as the sort of like girl power character who's pushing back against the heroes. And when we talked to Eric Kripke, he had a few different really interesting things to say. I think first of all, the idea of swapping the gender and making uh, Stormfront a female character is largely in response to Homelander, who's sort of the Captain America of the boys. But if Captain America was evil and crazy, And introducing a strong female character was a purposeful idea to just sort of drive Homelander crazy, was uh, what Kripke said. As for the, the other side of it, what he told me was that he thinks the way that white supremacy and fascism and Nazism have evolved over the past few years and decade to embrace the Internet and look a lot more flashy, you know, bringing in younger people, attractive people to sell this to a new generation is something really scary. And he wanted to reflect that in a character like Stormfront, who's, you know, a good looking young woman who 
gets a lot of attention. There's a whole plotline where she's like pumping out memes that are getting a lot of attention online. So it's a really interesting reflection of the actual world today. It's not just limited to the boys, Netflix Umbrella Academy in particular. It notably used the story about the sit-in protest in 1963 in its first season. Can you talk a little bit about how that show was able, because I understand you interviewed the showrunner of Umbrella Academy 2. Were you able to get a sense of the driving force behind wanting to push these themes to the forefront? Yeah, I spoke to Steve Blackman, who adapted Umbrella Academy for Netflix. I also interviewed Alison Hargraves, who's the black woman from the family who participates in the sit-ins. The interesting thing there, I think, is that the comics already had them going back to the 60s, but they really didn't touch any of this stuff. And when they were writing the show for the second season, they realized, you know, how can we possibly have a black woman in the 60s and not talk about this? And the result is a really incredible episode. It's really it's really powerful. It's stylized, but at the same time, it's one of the most uh, evocative portrayals of a sit-in and that kind of protest that I've ever seen. And the timing couldn't have been better. They talk about good trouble. It was like John Lewis's passing just happened. The Black Lives Matter movement is blowing up. I asked him about that and he said, you know, I think anytime I've asked anyone about that kind of thing, it's always like, look, the timing is great, but honestly, these issues have been going on forever. We're just addressing something that's not new. Because first off, you know, you consider the sit-ins, right? There's nonviolent protests. And then there's a look at the, the violent history. You look at something like Watchmen to start the show off with the Tulsa massacre as a backdrop. That's just another way to go with it. You just bring these issues to the forefront in a way that reflects the times. What's your sense of Watchmen and, and its ability to do that? Yeah, Watchmen's an incredible example. To open with the Tulsa race massacre, which is a really terrifying piece of American history that no one knows about, was great. And then they just kept it up, right? The reveal that Dr. Manhattan was a black person was also really powerful. Uh, I spoke to the uh, director on that episode a while ago when the show came out, and she said it was totally intentional. They were trying to make a statement. I think that HBO's been great in general. They also have a new show, Lovecraft Country, that just started that turns Lovecraft's monsters into just racist people in the South, which is also a really good, really good show that tackles these ideas from a sort of genre-y sci-fi way. How do you see this playing out in the future, whether it be through dark-themed superhero shows or what have you? How do you see this movement continuing to make its way through the media we consume? Yeah, that's a good question. I still think in a way it, it feels a little edgy, right? You have shows like The Boys that are purposefully trying to push the envelope, or you have a show, and Watchmen, shows like Umbrella Academy, which are a little more friendly, but maybe we'll spend one episode or two episodes out of a season addressing these issues. I think the real question is whether they can drag the really the mainstream superhero stories in the same direction, like Marvel and DC, these huge movies that make hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions of dollars. I don't know if they're going to be addressing these issues in as intense a way anytime soon, but I would love to see that. Very good. We'll leave it at that. Jake, thanks so much. Thanks, Tanya. Head to Inverse.com to read more about how the boys, Umbrella Academy, and superhero shows in general are tackling issues of social injustice and racism. There you can also find exclusive interviews with both programs' showrunners. You can click on the link in the show notes for all stories we talked about today. If you agree that science and facts matter more than ever, give us a rating and review on iTunes to help more people find The Abstract and other podcasts like it. New episodes of The Abstract are released three times a week. Find old episodes and more original reporting on science, innovation, culture, and entertainment at Inverse.com. Look for The Abstract Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. For Inverse, I'm Tanya Bustos. Thanks for listening.